In recent uh, years, I have, in preparation for being in a parish and, and being kind of out of the seminary world, um, about three, four years ago, I started trying to pay attention to more what was going on in the world of uh, politics, of media, of just what is the thing, what is the thing that the world talks about more regularly. Um, this year, uh, it's no secret that 2020 has been rough on all accounts, right? Um, everything from basically since LSU won the national championship on, it has just been a rough year. Somebody was like, hey, one good memory, and I'm like, I know one person, Joe Burrow can tell you a good memory, but um, the year has just been rough. And if you listen, if you pay attention, if you just look at a, a Twitter feed or headlines on the news, everyone is angry. Everyone's mad. Everyone's mad and up, uh, up in arms about something. It seems like there's not, enough, there's not enough times that we hear how angry people are. We just scroll through Facebook or Twitter or any other social media account, you're going to see how many people are just angry. And they both line up on both sides of the aisle. Angry about an election. Angry about mail-in ballots. Angry about this candidate or that candidate. Angry about which lives matter. Angry if you're going to watch the NFL today or not. Angry about everything. Angry about wearing a mask. Anger is just something that is palpable in our society right now. We don't go to conversation. We jump straight to anger. The reason why I bring that up is because the first words that we heard from Scripture today speak directly to where we are as a society. Wrath and anger are bad things, and the sinner hugs them. Think about that language. Wrath and anger are not of God. They're vengeful things. They're horrible things. They're hatred. And the sinner hugs them. Doesn't just, doesn't just like it, doesn't just tolerate it, but embraces it. Wrath and anger seem to characterize our society, and that first verse that we hear from Sirach seems to be, just be a perfect example of how our world works today. That we hug and hold on to it. We harbor it. We protect it, our anger. It, it's, it's one of those things, like it, for me, I think at times, that's, that's something that, while, while yes, we can get angry, and there's reasons, and, and, and good reasons, and justified reasons to be mad at different things going on in our world. There's something about it that, that really frustrates me whenever I'm scrolling through and I see Christians, or Catholics, or, or people with a platform promoting angry things, just for the sake of venting to the, the zeitgeist of, of social media. I want to make sure that everybody hears how angry I am about this. How angry I am about that. The other night I was at a friend's, uh, a buddy of mine was going off, he's, he's a military chaplain, he's going off to the Navy, and I was talking to a couple of priests, and one of them said something like, it was something to the effect of, you know, we were, well, we we're concerned about this, and we're concerned about that, we're concerned about this, and these are the things that are getting pushed and, and broadcasted. When are we going to get angry about sin? And I thought he was very, very, it was a profound statement, and it kind of hit me hard. When are we going to be angry about sin? 
Because we as the church are called to dictate culture, not to fall into the current of culture, not to just follow what it is that people that are, are elected officials or, or people with collars are supposed to do. We as the church are called to dictate culture, to stand for truth, to stand for good, to stand for justice, to stand for peace. And so often, especially right now, it seems like we're just falling into the current and the division and the anger of the moment. We're called to serve, to to show love, to show mercy. We're called to recognize the dignity of the other person on the other side of us. To listen to them, not just to hear them, but to listen to them. There's a big difference because when we hear somebody, we can be hearing what they're saying, but we're just, we're preparing our remarks back. But when we listen, we're engaged into what they have to say. We're learning about that person. We're learning about what their, their situation is in life. That's, that's less comfortable, but it actually builds relationships. Today, when we look at our gospel, you know, Sirach, the first reading in the gospel, always match up. They always point to each other. They have a common theme, generally. And when Sirach says this, the way that the church matches it up is with what we hear today. We hear this story where Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times are we supposed to forgive? And then he thinks he's going to go above and beyond. Because in the Jewish law, the Jewish way of of, of working with your brothers and sisters around you, the number was three. The number to forgive people was three times. In fact, Jesus had just kind of played on this when he was talking about fraternal correction, where you go personally, then with one witness, then to the church, right? Whenever he was talking about that, we heard that last week. The number was three. And Peter thinks, I'm going to go above and beyond. Hey, Jesus, what about seven? What about the number of the covenant? How about about I I, I more than double what the law prescribes? And Jesus says, not seven times. And there's, a, there's, some dis, there's some discussion on exactly what he says, but a lot of scholars say that the translation we read today wasn't the best, that it's actually 490 times. It's seven times 70 times that you're called to forgive. And he uses this story to break open that idea. He uses this image. And the image, to, just to, to explain it to all of us if you didn't catch it, right? The image is basically that this debtor, this person who is in debt to his master, comes to his master, and the master says, I'm going to collect my money. Now again, we hear huge amount. Let's, the, the, the Greek, the, there's other sources, other translations that break it open, says that he owed 10,000 talents. A talent was basically the biggest piece of currency, and it was worth 6,000 days' wages. I'm not a failed engineering, but 6,000 times 10,000, if I'm not mistaken, equals 60 million days' wages. So if, if, if this guy would have started working from the moment that Jesus said that to today, he would still have 160,000 years that he would have to be working off. Needless to say, it's an impossible amount. An impossible amount to pay back. And the master says, it's forgiven. 
We're called, we, we are that debtor. Right? Be, let's be angry about sin. Like Our sin builds that kind of debt. And when we walk into the confessional, when we, when we go through the avenues of the church, when we seek communion and reconciliation with our God, He does that on a daily basis for us. He will wipe out 150,000 years of, of punishment for the sake of being merciful. Because he recognizes who we are. He's created us in his image and likeness. We have a dignity and he recognizes it and cherishes it. But our culture and and us, right, because we're part of the culture, we turn around and oftentimes we do what this guy does today. The amount that he then is choking his friend over a little while later is one day's wage. One denarii. One day's wage. He just had 600, he just had 60 million days wages taken off of his back. And he turns around with vengeance and spite and chokes his friend, demanding that you pay me back my one. What happens whenever, what happens from the moment that he's standing before God and being forgiven? to the moment that he's standing before his friend and demanding what he perceives as justice. I think what happens is is he he doesn't recognize that God sees him as a human being. God recognizes his dignity. God recognizes that he is in the image and likeness of God and that he's called to do the same. But he falls short in it. He's called to recognize the dignity of the person that he disagrees with that has offended him, that owes him. And he loses sight of it. In our world today, we lose sight of the dignity of the human person a lot. We lose sight of the dignity of the human person a whole lot. Our culture does not recognize the dignity of the human person. Every year we go, the last, Eight years, we're not going this year, but the last eight years or so, I've gone through the March for Life. And the March for Life, one of the things we talk about is the dignity of the human being. We talk about it from conception to natural death, that every life is completely and totally precious. And anything that pushes the agenda of abortion is wrong, is morally wrong. Anything that pushes the, obje- obje- the objectification of human life, where we stop, to see a, we stop seeing a person as a, a, a person made in the image and likeness of God and start seeing them as a thing, it's wrong. There's, two, there's usually a few places that we point to and a few places that we go to really make this point clear. And I'll be honest, like I, this past year was one of, the experiences, one of the experiences that I had was something I've never experienced before on the March for Life. You see, every year we go to the Holocaust Museum. Now, if you're ever in D.C. and you want to go to one of, the most, one of the most fantastic museums you've ever been to, go to the Holocaust Museum. It's gut-wrenching, but you feel the weight of, the, of, the, of, the, of what the Holocaust was. You feel the sense of the evil that was behind it, the mindset that was behind it. And for years, I have walked through that museum, and every year, something new catches me. 
whether it be the experimentation that's going on, the smell of, uh, of, of shoes that were left behind, of, of pictures of people walking to their death and others that were being brought to, to be shaved and, and throw out and work. There's a lot of things that stick out in my mind. One of the things that never, never hit me, though, was, you know what, it was really easy for me to walk through and to look at the German soldiers, the Nazi soldiers, and just look at them and say, you know what, I can't believe them. And just see them as evil. Just to put everything on them. You know what, they're evil, they're wrong, they're bad, all these things. Because I, I saw the atrocities that were being, that were being committed. Well, this year, this past year, we, connect, we always connect the pro-life debate because the pro-life debate is about objectifying human life. Jews were seen as objects before they were seen as anything else. Things to be disposed of. We rewind a little bit further back. It's the same issue with slavery. It's the same thing that happened with slaves. That African men and women were seen as property sold and shared like on the stock market, like cattle. They were seen as things. And this year we went to the African American History Museum, a new museum in, in, in D.C. And when we started to walk through the exhibit, it was me and one other person. And as we're walking through, we get to, you have to go down to the bottom floor, and then you work your way up. So we're in this basement. It's dark, it's kind of, you know you're underground. And as we're walking through, all of a sudden there was something that changed in my mind. There was something that changed as compared to going to the Holocaust Museum. Because we're in the, they, they, you follow a timeline and we're in the timeline of the slave trade. And as we're walking through, I see, well, South Carolina had slaves and then I see Georgia had slaves and then I see, oh, well, Mississippi had slaves and Alabama had slaves, but... Then I get to the wall that talks about Louisiana slave trade. And the people look like me. And I'm from there. And all of a sudden, it felt like what it might feel like for a German person to walk through the Holocaust Museum. That there was sentiment that I could, I could attest to there. That there was a weight about being here. You see, the objectification of human life not recognizing the dignity of the human person is one of the biggest and worst things that, one of the biggest problems and worst things that we have in our culture today. Social media makes it where it perpetuates it even more. Because what happens, it's easy to be on a keyboard and yelling at a screen and not recognizing there's a person on the other side of that. It's really, really easy to objectify human life today. If we're going to say that we're pro-life, we can't just be anti-abortion. We, we, we cannot be just pushing anti-abortion legislation. Absolutely, 100%, we need to end that sin, that cultural sin. But if we're going to say that we're pro-life, we need to be pro-all life. We need to be pro from, from conception to natural death, as we say. And anything that stands in the way or that objectifies human life, we can't stand for. We really think about it. Uh, a, a priest friend of mine used this image one time. He said, let's start doing what's necessary. Then let's do what's possible. Then let's aim for the impossible. Before long, we'll start doing the impossible. With the abortion debate, what's necessary? Let's, let's make it illegal. 
But what's possible, let, let's redo what it looks like to adopt. Let the foster care system actually be worth something. And sooner or later, all life might actually have a chance. When it comes to the debate of racism, let's start doing what's necessary. I, I, I once heard, I heard somebody just recently use this image. He said, you know, it, we don't put, a lot of times, people don't put that sin on the same level as sexual sin. When he, he used this image, he said, how many times if I have people over at my house and I got kids around and somebody says a very, very crash joke that I'll look at him and say, bro, we don't need that. Got kids around. Somebody starts using really, really profane language. Hey, we don't need that. We got kids around. But how many times do we tolerate the joke or the comment that might be racial in nature? Let, let, let's start doing what's necessary. <laughs> then we can do what's possible. And pretty soon the church can start looking like the church. The church, we as, as the church, can start looking like and acting like the, the, the church that Jesus Christ founded. See, when it comes to political stuff, we're not called, we as Catholics are not called to, to promote one agenda or another, one side or another, the, the left or the right of the aisle, a certain party, anything like that, certain candidates, no. We know what we preach. We preach the gospel. Our job as Catholics, our job is to be completely convinced and living for the gospel that Jesus Christ promotes. The gospel that Jesus Christ proclaims. The gospel that Jesus Christ lived and inspired us to live as well. And as we hear in today's gospel, it's a gospel of mercy. It's a gospel of reflecting the love that we have received from God to the rest of the world. We start to do what's necessary. We can do what's possible. And if we're doing what's possible, pretty soon God, in God's hand, the possible achieves the impossible. May we be above the anger of our times. May we be above the partisanship of our time. May we be advocates and professors of the gospel. Amen.